Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts, and we have a very special guest for you today. His name is David Sutherland. David is actually coming, this is a first on the podcast, coming to us from Sydney, Australia. So good morning, David. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Even though it's evening in Houston when we're uh, recording this, but David is going to tell you an amazing story. He is currently the chairman of the board of International Care Ministries, but he's been a lawyer. He's been in the corporate world. He's also been in government. So stay tuned for that incredible story and currently runs one of the largest uh, ministries uh, operating in the Philippines of all places. Usually he's kind of based in Hong Kong. So an international man of mystery, but we're going <laughs> to, we're going to, Get to the bottom of this story. Uh, so, David, uh, why don't we just start by telling us where you grew up and what was family life for you growing up? Oh, sure. Well, um, I was born in uh, northern Maine. My uh, parents met at Bob Jones University. So uh, my parents wanted to plant churches up there. So they, we went around and, and kind of moved from city to city up there. And then when I was seven... We moved to Maryland, and then we moved to Belgium, and then we moved back to Maryland, then to Michigan, and then we moved to Southern Texas, and then I went back to Maine, and I graduated with the same kids I start, started kindergarten with. Full circle. You bet. You bet. Yeah, I went in 13 years, I went to 10 different schools. Hmm. And so, was that all church planting, or what, what, why were all the moves happening? Uh, my dad, I think, was afflicted with wanderlust. He just loved to move. So... He was doing church planning for a while, then he worked for the U.S. State Department because he felt like God wanted him to be involved in, in ministry overseas. So, you know, we went to Belgium. He was, uh, he was working at, for the, the embassy there. And then he was the international vice president for Child Evangelism Fellowship for a few years. And then he worked for the U.S. Customs Department. So he kind of had a, had a wide variety of jobs. Well, now this, you know, we talked a little before we started recording, and it didn't hit me the first time you told me that story. But, you know, I think kids who move around a lot become a lot more adaptable, right? I mean, you have to make friends wherever you go, probably comfortable moving to new cities. I mean, you parents move around the country, and yeah. you moved around the world. So, yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But we'll get into some of that. Now, you had an interesting sort of educational journey that included debate and this sort of thing, you got to kind of tell how that all okay. ties together. Because I think the education and the debate are kind of, don't those yeah. stories kind of parallel, right? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So when we were, I was in Southern Texas and a uh, freshman in high school, my mother said, I think maybe you'd be a good debater just as a competition. So, you know, I wasn't the best football player. So, you know, I, that seemed like a better, better uh, fit for my skills. So, you know, we got more and more involved. My brother was a year younger than I am. So when I was a sophomore, he became my partner. And, uh, and so those of you who don't know about debate, it's a two-person competition, two people debate against the other two people. And so my brother and I, we were a team and then we moved back up to Northern Maine and we continued to debate on the, the U.S. wide circuit on the top. And we were, we eventually became one of the best team, high school teams in the country. And, uh, like Harvard invited us to the, to, uh, one of their events with the top 13 teams in the country. We came in third place. So you know, we were doing pretty well. 
My brother decided to graduate from high school one year early so that we could continue to debate together in college. And so when we went high school, we were probably spending 40 hours a week on debate. By the time we got to college, we were spending 100 hours every week on debate. It was, it was a consuming occupation. And uh, it was really fun. I mean, when we finished our freshman year, we went to freshman nationals. We came in second place. Did well our sophomore year. We um, on in our junior year, we came in third place in America. Most of the other top team ten teams graduated. So um, you know, it was kind of a you know real thrill. The whole time, my brother and I were strong Christians, and the guys at Air Varsity at our at our university campus, they kept pestering us to be more and more involved in ministry. And we said, we're happy to go to your John study or be an Indian here, but we really can't, we don't have the bandwidth to really lead anything because we're busy. You know, we're going to be in Kansas next weekend and Florida the weekend after that and Texas the weekend after that. So, you know, we were kind of moving all around with another bandwidth. So um, we kept saying no to him. And then after our junior year, he convinced us to go to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for a one-week conference in how to build a small group or something. And he didn't really want to go, but I just had said no to the guy so many times. Didn't have any good excuses after debate season. So we went up there, and uh, then I went left, and my brother went right. There were 500 students to each other all week long. And during that, the first few days of that week, I felt like God was kind of whispering to me. He said, "If you, what if you devoted your last year, your senior year of college, what if you devoted it to ministry instead of to debate? And what if that resulted in the etern- changing the eternal trajectory of just one person? Would that be worth it for you? And I felt like saying to God, that is such an unfair question because of course it would be worth it to me, but you know, God, I've been working for six, uh, six years, you know, for this time. And now I've got nine months left. How about we kind of finish what we started here and then, you know, do something else. But it just really felt like God was not okay with that. And, um, and I remember kind of shedding a few tears and, uh, not a real emotional guy, but I just felt like God was asking me to give up the most important thing in my life. And so, um, but made that commitment, said, okay, we're going to, we're going to do intervarsity first, ministry first, and then debate us, you know, when we have with the leftover time. And so then, uh, I met with my brother cause I was a little worried down. He said, but he had kind of got the same message independently. And so that last year we kind of decided to do a lot more things with intervarsity. We still did debate. We're still on, on scholarship, but you know, instead of doing a hundred hours a week, we were doing 60 hours or something. So, and that may sound like a lot, but let's just say we tried to you know, win the, win the big, the big goal, you don't really cut your training regimen in half. So as the, in our senior year, uh, we still traveled a lot and we finished in the normal year, say about fifth place in the country, which kind of the same we did our junior year. And it's not really where we wanted to be, but the national championship is determined to one, uh, one term at the end of the year, just like the NCAA basketball, right? Same deal. So um, they start with 110 teams at the beginning of the weekend. Then on the last day, they narrowed it down to 16. And after that, every debate, is you know single elimination more or less. So we started the morning and we had uh, 16 teams and we debated against Baylor and they were close, but there were seven judges and four of them voted for us and three for them. And then we went and we debated against another team in our quarterfinals, close, but we ended up winning. In the semifinals, we uh, debated against uh, Dartmouth, the team I almost went to, um, but, it's, but it was five judges and three voted for us and two for them. So these were very close debates. We ended up in the finals against Redlands, which is the same team we'd lost to our freshman year. And uh, a debate normally lasts about two hours, and then the judges take 15 minutes to decide. Well, in this debate, we did our two-hour debate, and the judges took two hours to decide. And normally, the, ju- the tournament director would just stand up and say, one, this time the guy decides to add a little, a little excitement to it. So he's got five sealed ballots, and so he opens the first judge's ballots. 
for them, and the second one is for us, and the third one is for them, and the fourth one's for us, and he holds up the last ballot. This is the one that's going to decide. And he opens that ballot up, and it's for us. And we had won the national championship. And I have to tell you, that was a, that was a really kind of powerful moment for me because I had not, the day was so fast that like, you know, we didn't have any time to reflect on what was going to happen. It's not like at some point I said, oh, I wonder how I'll feel if I win the national championship. Like we were just, you know, frenetic. And, and so when that moment happened, when I heard him announce that, I just felt like God whispered to me, said, if you'll put me first in my life, I will take care of you. And without really thinking about it, I, I kind of responded. I said, listen, God, if you have shown me that you have got great power and you love me and care for me next time, if you ask me to do something, I will follow you. And it doesn't matter whether I lose at the end that, you know, I'm going to follow you in my life. So God used that as a very powerful moment in my life. I mean, I, I think I had a warped view of reality at the time. I felt at the time that winning the national championship was going to be the single most defining moment of my life. That when I die, they're going to put me in a, in a cemetery and it's going to be on my son. He was the national champion and that's why he was different than everybody else. Okay, that's what, that was my mindset. That was completely wrong. And I think I mentioned this to you earlier. I, I remember I eventually went to law school. I, was, I think I was like fourth or fifth year associate and I had a partner that was pretty unhappy with some memo I'd written and I was like at 2 a.m. rewriting it. He was going to, and I remember just muttering to myself, doesn't he know that I was the national champion? I love that story. <laughs> And when he, you know, when it, when I kind of mumbled that to myself, I realized I had this epiphany. No, he really doesn't care what I did with my extracurricular activities when I was in uh, in university, right? So I think that 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 experience that I had a warped view of how important it was, but God used that that even that warped view in that it allowed me to experience that that emotional um, connection of achieving success at something that was very important for me at an early age. I think most. Human beings often are striving after success and they kind of keep going until they're 50 or 55 or something. And then they do the Bob, Bob Buford thing and they pivot from looking for success to significance. But what God used this experience for me is that I think I had satisfied that innate drive to try to prove to your father or your mother or yourself that you can be successful. I had kind of done something that was really important to me. And it allowed me to pivot to significance at a much earlier age than than other people. So I, I don't know. That's, well, that's kind for, of humble. Thanks for sharing that story. What comes to mind is a podcast we released just a, a few weeks uh, before this one was Terry Looper, who talks about you know a very driven business guy who God literally had to stop him physically, like he could not get out of bed or function. That's the way God had to get yeah. his attention a little bit later in life. And he made a similar deal with him in terms of you're cutting the hours in debate. I can't even imagine the number of hours. Like I've got a daughter that plays D1 sports and that, that sounds worse. The, your schedule sounded worse <laughs> than hers. And now that hers has been pretty rough. So the, the uh, but this idea where Terry said that God was telling him you, you can only work 40 hours a week. And, mm -hmm. and to him, that was like a good start to the week. He's like, no yeah, way yeah, I yeah. can do the that things I want to do. And of course, everything got bigger and better after he was obedient in that way. And so, you know, the, the, the thought that comes to my mind is, wasn't God generous to you mm -hmm. to bring this to your attention? Now, actually, you went to a place to get quiet. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Do you think if you'd gone to that place, if you had, let me rephrase that. If you had not gone to that place to get quiet, 
Do you think that message gets received? You know what I mean? It was. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's not like I made some macro decision to go because I wanted to hear deep. No, no, that's God. I just, you know, God just used this guy that kept pestering me to, and I, I just ran out of times to say no. So that's how I ended up doing there. Yeah, but for sure, God used that. But you had to still say yes to showing up at that thing, even though you didn't know the outcome. So I think, I think God was generous to you to kind of show you that. Early. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. The worst things could happen to you than winning the national championship. You know, like you get, uh, you know, you get sick and be stuck in bed. Well, I, I think if God's got to use one of those two to, to get a message, you know, I, I was very fortunate. Well, and then it, the, the, the passage, the verse comes to mind about seeking first the kingdom, right? Sure. sure and sure. then all yeah, these exactly. things are added to you. So it's not like, I, I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think I know I had this sort of view of God early in my life where, boy, it seems like he's got a lot of rules that limit my joy. And then later in life, I realized, wait a minute, just like the great parent he is, he's doing this so that we can have more joy. And so now this leads you on a a pretty interesting path in life. So you shared with us, as any good debate champion would do, you go to law school. That's what what you do, right? That's right. So talk a little about that and and it, it just, just go ahead and and fill us in on on that path a little bit. Yeah, well, during debate, I just was too busy to decide what my major would be. And my right. dad just said, well, uh, you know, your one requirement for me is is that when you finish undergraduate, you have to have a credential, like, uh, and, you know, something that will actually, you know, so you won't pump gas and be coming back to sleep on my couch. So he said, if you can't figure anything else out, you can be an accountant. And so I was just too busy to figure out. So I just signed up for accounting classes and I was just not, and then I got through, halfway through my junior year and I thought, these accounting classes are the most wretched thing I have ever done. But I, I was so deep into it that I just went ahead, held my nose, finished yeah. up. So when I finished undergraduate, I was, a, you know, I was an accountant. And so I went to Arthur Anderson and uh, took the CPA exam. And then I got a master's degree in taxation. And about that same time, you know, I got married and we went to Urbana in 1984. And we really felt like God was calling us to live overseas and to be tent makers. And so with my, at that point, tax background, really felt like uh, focusing on international tax would be the credential that would let me go overseas. So then I went to law school at the University of Virginia and focused just on tax. And my wife got her master's degree in linguistics. And so that we were ready to kind of, you know, head overseas. And, uh, and so then, you know, when we graduated from undergraduate, we decided we had kind of, we were looking to invest our lives in uh, evangelism, but in a context that would have a special impact on society. And I felt from grading, debating all the great socialists of the world that global poverty is the number one thing that afflicts our world. It is um, It afflicts billions of people that there's no other social, secular ill that is even close. So we felt like, you know, being involved in evangelism, but doing it in a context of poverty would be the kind of thing that um, that God would call us to do. So then we kind of did a little research about where the most of the poor people in the world are. And at that time, they said, you know, everybody kind of thought of Africa, but there was only 600 million people in the whole continent of Africa at that point. Half of them were poor, 300 million poor Africans. Well, India had 700 million poor Indians. And uh, and just if we looked and I, we figured that 80% of all the poor people in the world lived within a five-hour airplane ride of Hong Kong. So we ended up thinking that Hong Kong was the place for us. So in 88, late 87, we went on a look-see trip to Asia just to see, and we spent a couple months in the Vietnamese refugee camp in Hong Kong, some time in Beijing, Singapore, Taiwan, and left the conviction that God really wanted us to live most of our lives in Hong Kong. So we went back to D.C. to kind of get the career started, and then in 89, Tiananmen Square happened, and it jammed things up. So 
really no jobs. I, I couldn't find a job as a lawyer or as a tax accountant in Asia for a while. So I ended up working for Wall Street law firms for about seven years in the D.C. office. And then uh, I went to work for the Clinton administration. I was the Associate National Tax Council. So I represented the U.S. government in tax negotiations with Asian countries. So that was kind of a good platform for me. After I'd been in the government for three and a half years, I got a call, Morgan Stanley at the time, the biggest investment bank in the world. And they, and I didn't know these guys. And they said, we've got some opportunities. Maybe you want to work with us in taxes. And I just thought, oh, investment bankers are the bad guys. You know, those are the guys that think they're the masters of the universe and they are kind of obnoxious. And I just thought that's not who I am. So I, I basically said something like, uh, if hell freezes over, I'll let you know, you know, something like that. But and so there was this pause because Morgan Stanley doesn't usually get that kind of reaction. They usually get whatever they want. And so uh, then he paused and he said, well, we've got an opportunity in Asia and we'd heard you're interested in Asia. And I just remember looking at the phone thinking, buddy, I'm not really interested in your company and you're interested in your industry, but I am interested in your geography. So you should have started with that. So at any rate, two months later, we were living in Asia. So we picked up the family and uh, moved over to Hong Kong and uh, it was a wild ride. I mean, just professionally, it was great. You know, I spent... Uh, a dozen years running tax for Morgan Stanley in Asia. And so I was managing a billion dollars worth of tax. We were one of the biggest taxpayers in most of the countries in Asia. At one point, we paid more Japanese tax than Toyota did in Japan. And, you know, and so I just kind of, I put 5 million miles on the airplanes and really got to know the continent well. And then in 2009, the firm Morgan Stanley asked me to become the chief financial officer in Asia Pacific for the whole operation. And so that was just a great experience. Uh, so professionally, it was really, it was really rich. That's, that's amazing. I'm sitting here thinking, I've only had, I've only worked for three companies other than the, the, the one I founded here. And uh, yeah. you worked for two out of three of those. Is that right? Anderson and Morgan Stanley. <laughs> so, and we didn't even meet that way through either one of those. We met through a kind of a shared interest in global poverty is actually the way we yeah. got together. So shout out to David Sims who introduced us. But uh, okay, so now now you've gotten, you finally got to Asia where God's been sort of calling you, okay? Yep. And it's not maybe the ideal job, but it got you over there. So how do you get from that to what you're doing now? Yeah, so when we went, we went with the conviction that God was calling us to Asia, but we came without connection to any particular ministry, right? We didn't know. Right. So what we decided to do is to treat ministry a little bit like private equity. So we decided to invest a little bit of time, a little bit of money in 10 different small indigenous charities and just see which ones, you know, what would happen. And as expected, some of them just fell over. They weren't going to go anywhere, right? So we did some things in Thailand and it just didn't go anywhere. We did some things to street children in Indonesia. We did some things with special needs orphans in China. And our doc, we adopted a, a, a daughter from China. So we had a real connection there. I would have expected that to be a real close connection for us. But after a decade, both those charities uh, were still the same size as they were started. And I remember saying to the guys in China, when are we going to reach the 10 million orphans that are in China? And they said, well, we really feel called to reach these 300 kids. And I go, well, I mean, that's good for you. That's not the way God's called me. I, you know, I think God's fired. So we kind of then pivoted away from that. But then um, God allowed us to found two charities in Hong Kong that have become both very large. And I, both times I was able to find somebody else to be the CEO and find a, a revenue generation. I'm still the chairman of the board of both of them, but it hasn't consumed my time. The thing that did consume my time is we had this lady from the Philippines. Uh, she originally from Singapore. She was working in the Philippines. She came to our little church in Hong Kong and she was standing up in front. This was 98, I think. And that was back when, you know, she was holding up 
uh, piece of cardboard with a blown up picture on it and trying to walk around the room to show just because, you know, we didn't have any way to show any overhead slides. And, you know, we still had mimeograph machines back then, right? And uh, so she just told some heartbreaking stories in the Philippines and, you know, heroic people that were trying to help. So, you know, we just decided to invest a little bit of time, a little bit of money in that thing she was talking about. It just seemed to pay out of proportion dividends to anything we did. The little bit of money went way farther and helped more people. The little bit of energy we invested, they were really just a sponge to learn and to engage and have conversations. So just got more and more involved. And so pretty soon, you know, I actually for a while kind of looked to try to offload the management responsibilities there, but just God didn't bring that right connection through. So I just got more and more and more involved. And so when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was just doing an enormous, I was essentially the CEO of the organization. And uh, my last full year when I was CEO at Morgan Stanley, I traveled between Hong Kong and the Philippines 40, I flew, flew across the ocean 40 times in one year while I was still oh working at Morgan Stanley. And all those were ICM stuff. So we're, you know, it's just, I could leave on Friday night and be back on you know Sunday morning. And so I didn't necessarily need to miss any work, but just really consuming. So yeah, that's how we got involved. And then the, the ministry just kept growing and growing. And, um, and I remember, you know, when we started, the ministry was $50,000 a year. And then just a few of us were growing it with putting our own hands in our own pockets. We weren't really asking for external donations for the first five years or so. You know, every year we would just go to the local guys. They'd say they want 150000 for next year. And we'd say, well, how about two hundred? And then the next year they'd say, how about two fifty? And we'd say, how about three fifty? dollars You know, and, and that was kind of fun. It was able to grow. So we probably grew it to a million dollars a year just for the few of us. And then it was mostly run out of our care group. So it was really expensive to be my friend back then. But uh, <laughs> But uh, then, you know, when we got to a million dollars, we decided that we better start reaching out to other people. We started a banquet in Hong Kong and invested, invited 300 of our best friends. And then it really changed the ministry because instead of our accountability donors just around a, a Thursday evening dining room table, instead now we needed to reach out to a few hundred people. So, and, you know, it really changed things. And then, and then what happened in, we grew to, and then we grew to like $7 million a year. It was 2012, I think we had the board meeting and we uh, of the ICM board, and we decided to grow the organization seven million up to 25 million in the next few years. And I remember thinking to myself, "Heck, am I going to triple the size of this already decent sized organization and still do Morgan Stanley? You know, how am I going to balance all that? I wasn't sure I was going to do it. So that was late in the fall of 2012. And what I didn't know is God had a plan for that which is in December of 2012, I walked into my boss's office in New York, you know, right there on Times Square and, and, um, 1585 Broadway, 1585 Broadway. And let's say he was in one of the high floors. He was a busy guy. And, and so I just walked into his office and I had so many things to tell him. And before I started, he, uh, raised his hand and said, wait, just want to let you know, we decided we don't need a CFO in Asia. You have any questions? And that meeting started at, 2 p.m. and at 2:10 p.m. I was back at the W Hotel across the street in my hotel, and my my career was over. My Morgan Stanley career was over after 17 years. And you know, I have to say, I didn't necessarily disagree with the decision they made in the sense I was making twice as much money as my number two guy was. Been trying to wring expenses out of the the uh, the income statement, so I didn't re- disagree with that. But what surprised me is I didn't is that it surprised me, meaning I didn't think that they would do that right. for a variety of reasons. So I felt a little disappointed. But as I walked across the street, I kind of felt God again whisper in my ear, and He seemed to be saying, "I'm going to take care of you." And um, 
and then I remembered the thing about growing the growing the ministry more, and so uh, you know that it just sort of started a wild ride, and so been full time with ICM pretty well ever since. Okay, now such an interesting. I mean, it's funny the way you just tell the story is like bang, 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 bang. Okay, there's so much to unpack yeah, well, here, but <laughs> at the end of the day, I really want to get into this stuff of yeah. the way you run this ministry. I think it's mm-hmm. really interesting the way you show the value and that kind of thing. So maybe take us into the ministry, maybe maybe how you got into it, but then let's get into the model a little bit, because I think this is going to be really helpful to the the folks listening. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I we call ourselves a business approach to fighting poverty. So, and evangelism is right at the core of everything we do, but, and then, uh, so it's not secular, right? It is very business, but we are trying to, to care for the whole person, not just, not only the spiritual side, but, and I think that, I think that we as evangelical Christians sometimes, when we're in the first world, when we're in Atlanta or in D.C. or somewhere, then we have the luxury of talking to people just about the spiritual trajectory because not very many of them are at risk for their physical well-being. But when you are, you know, James chapter 4 says that if you, if you find a person that doesn't have clothes or you find a person that doesn't have food and you don't pay attention to them, then what good is it, right? And it, when that was written, that was when people were spreading the news of Jesus Christ, right? And But they said, if you find somebody who's in an extreme situation, you have to treat them as if they're a whole person. You can't ignore their humanity and the, the human wretched struggles that they're dealing with. And so, you know, I, I feel a real calling that we need to give best practices on how to fight malnutrition, tuberculosis, how to help people grow, grow into savings groups, how to get kids in schools, like, and not just a throwaway extra thing that sometimes Christians do without looking at best practices of what's actually going to work. And say, you know, we're 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 preaching, and then we're just doing a little stuff on the side, but really do best practices in each of those areas. And so, and I guess one other thing about ICM is that you know a lot of ministries they want to have one pastor and one nurse and one social worker and you know a little bit of everything, and that's not our view. Our view is we want to have people that make decisions like business people. So we want to have a diverse board, but we want to have everyone from a perspective that has grown has grown some activity to scale understands what it's like to make a hard decision about cutting something that you wish you could, but you can't, you can't keep going and you got to double down so that you can make it right. That is this is the mindset that we feel. I feel that, that, you know, the scripture teaches us that, uh, the bot, that the, the body of Christ, everybody's got their own, uh, thing. There's the eye and the toe and all this sort of thing. Well, the board is the ones that govern. And so you don't necessarily want one of everyone that doesn't have experience of governing. You want to have people that have experience governing so that, as scripture says, those who, who lead have the opportunity to lead. So we take that, those people with that business mindset and they bring that rigor and that discipline of demanding results in what we do. And we're willing to make very difficult decisions. And sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of ministries, a lot of charities, um, are really emotional at what they do. And they, you know, they got three programs and, you know, somebody comes along and says, number one and two are doing better than number three. And then they say, but we can't cut number three. We love that. And they act like it's all emotional, you know, they get, and, but you know, a business guy doesn't do that. If you got three businesses and two of them are outperforming the other one, then he closes the third one and doubles on the first two. Right. And he doesn't go home and cry to his wife about how he had closed the third one. Right. He just, he just does. And it's not hard. And so we need to bring that same rigor to ministry as well, because there's a lot of lives at stake, both eternity and uh, and on this planet. And uh, sometimes we trade down and reduce the impact that we could have because we've decided to take off our business hats and not 
um, take that same rigor we would do in making our own personal investments or making our own career choices. And, uh, and so we want to try to bring that all there. So that's maybe, that's no, not, no, that's a good do, overview. And why and I, yeah. And I think that leads naturally into, uh, would you mind sharing some of the research that's been done? I think this is faster. Sure, 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 sure. Well, um, maybe just, uh, I'll just start with what we yeah. do. So after, uh, we did a decade of trial and error and then eventually through a whole bunch of research, we decided that the best way to change is we think that the size of the solution needs to match the size of the problem. And there are millions of people in poverty, so you have to have a, a, a solution that allows you to bring some kind of help to millions of people. If it costs you $1,000 per person to help them, you're never going to reach millions of people, right? Because you need hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollars, right? And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm going to raise a billion dollars. So, um, so, you know, low capital strategies that have real impact. And so what we did is we decided to partner with local churches. I think that God, uh, those pastors are God's hands and feet, and he has sprinkled them all over the world where poor people are. And uh, they're on the front lines, and they desperately want to help people in their community. They already know their first names. And, you know, sometimes people talk about uh, prosperity gospel as, as corrupting the third world church. And uh, I think there are places in which that's true, but it's mostly in the capital cities. When you go out into the, to the remote communities, we have not run into hardly any circumstance in which a pastor is even close to the same economic scale as the other people in this community. Mostly these are people that the pastors tend to be have more entrepreneurial skill than the average person in their community because they, they're confident they can stand up in front of a group of people and they can think they could choose to use that skill to help their family, but they don't. They choose to use that skill to help the kingdom of God because they feel that the God of the universe has put this calling in their lives. And they've done that at great, enormous personal, uh, uh, personal costs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes their own kids are malnourished as a result. It's really quite humbling. And so what we want to do is we want to empower these people to help the people in their And so we will, we have, Meetings we call Thrive Meetings, where we get, it's like, think of it as a ministerial association. In the Philippines, we've got about 200 districts. Pastors in each district has about 50 pastors that come once a, once a week for a full month. So right now, we've got almost 10,000 pastors that are coming for a full day every month, month after month after month. And then we teach them ministry skills, how to plant churches, how to preach, how to run marriage ministries, how to run youth, whatever. And then we also bring them into what we call peer mentoring. So they, they get into small groups and they get to be accountable to each other. That's a really powerful thing. And then once every uh, three times a year, we have open season. We say we're going to run really big programs to help 500 communities who, which of you 10,000 people, we're going to choose 500 in the next couple of months to run a big program. We do that three times a year. And, uh, and so the ones that get chosen that apply and then they, they go have to find six people from their own community to be their counselors because we're going to bring more poor people into their church than the one pastor could manage. And then those seven people, the six counselors, the one pastor, they then invite the 30 poorest people in their community into this training part. It's going to run once a month for, for uh, once a week for, six, uh, for four months, so for 15 weeks. And uh, the actual training program, we call it Transform. The first 30 minutes is around spiritual evangelism. And so we teach a curriculum to the pastor two-thirds are men, one-third are women, and those pastors, pastoras, they will then teach the gospel message. And then the second 30 minutes, we bring in our own health trainer, a local person who's been trained in health stuff, and then uh, we bring in our own livelihood trainer, who's so uh, a local person who's been trained in how to improve livelihoods. And we see at the end of four months, the average ultra-poor family that enters our program will exit with a 107% increase in household income, a 
36% reduction in serious illness, 19% reduction in chronic hunger, better relationships with their families, more kids in school, less dirt floors, kind of lots of improvements. And uh, we've now been able to take 1.6 million families through that program. So we've reached quite a scale and we, uh, and we try very hard to, to make it scalable. We've, we've got the fully loaded, we try to keep the fully loaded cost of the full four month program down to 10 US dollars per family member. And so that's one of the reasons why we are, we are able to scale. So all of that is, you know, trying to keep, I can't tell you how many things we could do to add more ornaments to the Christmas tree and make the program more expensive per person. And then you have a judgment call. Do you make it $20 per person and have, you know, more, even more impact, or do you keep raising going more wide or deep is always the thing that struggles. So, but all of those decisions are made by business people and they're using business type principles to evaluate um, decisions. Okay, one fun fact that you told me about is being on a podcast for Freakonomics. Now, yes. why in the world would somebody running a nonprofit in the Philippines, okay, beyond who's not an economist, you know, I think of those guys as kind of, why would they invite you on? Well, I think God did a, did an amazing thing. I think that when 2010, a guy named Dean Carlin, who was a, at the time a professor of Yale, and he was the founder of Innovations for Poverty Action, which is probably the top, uh, most respected organization in the world to measure poverty reduction programs. His colleagues at JPAL won the Nobel Prize in Economics a couple of years ago. And, and Dean, so Dean is just one of the most respected people in the world. And he was coming to Hong Kong and he was talking about how charities should use evidence to fight and I couldn't yep. go to his meeting. And so I had, and so, but I wanted to meet him. And so I had my secretary in Hong Kong call his secretary in New, New Haven and say, can the CFO of Morgan Stanley meet you? And he thought, oh, that's great. Says he was going to try to raise a bunch of money for Morgan Stanley for his charity. And then he met me and we had breakfast. And then after 10 sentences, he realized I had a charity I cared about. And he went, oh, darn, just mm -hmm. a guy with a charity, right? But, um, yeah, you know, we were, but, but he really uh, aligned with our passion for data and numbers and willing to seek the truth and willing to say, oh, something doesn't work. And, you know, and so that was really close. He had a, you know, a really interesting experience. He's, he is uh, not a Christian, would call himself a secular Jew, and, uh, but he has always been intrigued. He, he had a good experience with evangelicals when he was in university. And so he's always been intrigued about whether Christianity would actually help people get out of poverty or not. And so one of the things he wanted to help us with is he wanted to do some research to say, what happens if you have a whole bunch of communities, half of them you run your program in, include all the poverty reduction, but you also include your spiritual intervention. You evangelize them. Let's say they become more Christian. And then you have a random other sample of communities that didn't get that program. And you'll be able to test them against each other. And then actually had some communities which got only the poverty reduction, but no spiritual intervention. So then you could test against these and the idea is to try to measure how much faith itself is able to affect outcomes out of poverty. And so the reason of Freakonomics, uh, there was a famous comment that an economist made back in the 50s. I'm sure you've all heard you know, stories about how Christians are more likely to get divorced or less likely to divorce or more likely to work hard yeah. or whatever. But none of those are controlled. It might be that Christians are, you know, that Christianity is what makes us to get divorced less, but it might be that people who are less likely to get divorced are the same people that choose to be Christians. It may not necessarily be Christianity that causes that. And so there was a famous statement from a, from a big economist that said, we'll never know whether actually religion causes this or not, because it's not possible to randomize religion. 
And what Dean said is, oh, the way you guys are running your program, we can literally randomize religion because we could randomly do your intervention in some communities and not in others. So it was that it, it was a economic study that everyone thought was impossible. And that's what attracted the, the free economics people to, to talk about RCF. Okay. So you did this study. Yes, and we did. what were the results? The results at the midline, the results showed that, that uh, religiosity did improve uh, outcomes out of poverty over and above simple secular interventions. And so that was all really good. Uh, when we got to the end line, which is a couple of years after the end of the program, some of those results dissipated. And it's not actually so much the poverty results dissipated, but the, but the, um, the ministry results dissipated, meaning the difference between the treatment and control are, are the people who received our transformed program were not necessarily a lot more religious than the control group was. And we weren't sure what happened there, but what happened is that the people that we had ministered to continued to get more closer and closer to God. The problem is that the control group got even more religious than they were early on. And like, if you just looked at the data, it would be like there was a big revival in the, in the country. We didn't see it. So actually, there's something unusual happened in that data that we really haven't been able to explain at the end line. But the, at the midline, I think you'll read, there was, it was covered in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist. The midline all said that uh, religiosity improved, and I think we're going to try to replicate that study uh, again in the future. And you said something very interesting about kind of your personal conclusion around the importance of hope. Can you unpack that just for a minute? Yeah, so I think that most, including us, when we first started this, we really thought that if you want to get somebody out of poverty, you need to get them the tools that are needed to get out of poverty. They need to get a house, get a water well, they need to get you know, herd of goats to run a business or whatever it is. Physical needs. Physical needs or what we call stuff. They need stuff, <laughs> right? Stuff. Right. The technical and, term. And I, yeah, I, I don't mean that in a, de, de, in a no, I know. demeaning no. way, but, you know, they need stuff, right? And what we saw based on our data is that we think that the, the, when people are showing, they give them a herd of goats or they give them various things and they see that they actually, that people are going out of poverty, we believe that that Outcomes out of poverty are driven not by the stuff they've received, but by the hope they've received. Meaning that this guy's sitting in a mud puddle, he doesn't think anything's going to happen. Somebody from the outside comes and puts her arm around him and says, you can do it. I think you do. I'm, I believe in you so much, I'm going to give you a herd of goats. And then walks with them for two years. Well, it, you know, and then you come to the end and the guy actually is getting out of poverty more than the average guy. But why did that happen? And what we think is that didn't, uh, that that reduction in poverty didn't come necessarily just from the capital, from the goats. It came because somebody had their arm around them. And so if that's true, if the provision of hope is actually the thing that's going to drive reductions in poverty, then we can deliver reductions in hope much cheaper than we can deliver go uh, goats. Goats are expensive. And uh, if we link hope into this, the spiritual pastors that are all over these communities, we can deliver them a lot, a lot faster, a lot more efficient. So we feel that our program can deliver the uh, outcomes out of poverty generally at the same quantum as many of the, the best-in-class secular poverty reduction programs. And we can do it at 120th the price. So what we are in the midst of doing, we got a $5 million grant from the Global Innovation Fund, sector organization that's all about trying to maximize wow. uh, provision at scale. It's one of the biggest grants they've ever made. And so we're running a half a dozen randomized control trials, and we're trying to hopefully demonstrate to the world that the church, that these small local churches can provide hope to poor people around the world, can get them out of poverty in a more efficient way 
than hiring secular social workers to go into those same communities. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because I think so many of your peers struggle with fundraising outside uh, the Christian community. And so if you could prove that, maybe that would open up a whole new uh, world of funding uh, as well. That's our hope. And, you know, we're, we want to do that without compromising who God called us to be. God called us to, to get people out of, out of physical poverty, but he also called us to get pe- people out of spiritual poverty. So we want to, uh, and, and ICM's donor base is probably half Christian and half secular. And we don't, co- we don't compromise to the secular audience. We tell them what we do. And uh, we say that we're ministering to a faith-driven country. Like, you know, go to any meeting in the whole country. They started with prayer. But so, you know, if, if somebody from uh, outside told us we should use a God-neutral message, that we say that's just somebody from Geneva, London, New York, trying to impose your secular, secular worldview on people in the third world that deeply believe in the divine. And it would be culturally inappropriate to bring a God-neutral message to those people. That if you want to be contextually relevant, you should use the leverage and the context that they that they live their lives. And that has proven to be a, a persuasive um, pitch to many uh, many people that are have a secular worldview. Well, what strikes me as we as we get toward the end of our time together, and boy, there's a lot to, we could do many hours of this. This is a lot of fun uh, to hear your story, but you know, one of the gifts that you clearly have is using your secular experience and knowledge to sort of bridge that gap. That is fascinating to me that half of the donors are are not believers and that you're so data-driven that they're even, they just look at purely at the outcomes and go, they're superior with with the faith piece in there. And so your ability to bridge those worlds is very unique. And so I'll just encourage you, just as you encourage the pastors who could be doing other things to enrich themselves. I see the same parallel in you. You could be doing a lot of things that enrich yourself. So thank you for being obedient in this space to help others. Thank you very much. And, you know, the way we always try to leave this, I'm not going to completely leave you off the hook. Obviously, the way we think about these uh, podcasts is that you and I are just kind of having lunch and we let our friends listen in. Well, many of our friends are business people, maybe running their own companies or running a larger company like like you ran. And many of them are behind you on this journey. Maybe they're struggling to listen to God's voice about what to do. And they just want some practical tip. They're probably not going to move to the other side of the world tomorrow. God tells them to. I hope they're obedient. But what's some small practical step that you might uh, leave with, with, with folks to try tomorrow? You know, so, so many things to say there. I, you know, I guess uh, the, the thing that God has kind of put on my heart is that I've just seen far too many Christians that are really good business people and God gave them skills that was needed in order to build up the, you know, economic opportunities, right? So that they, they, and they are diligent at applying that. But as soon as they get to ministry sort of things, it's like they take that hat off and they become a different person and they just say, oh, I like that guy. I'm going to give him a hundred thousand dollars. You know, I, and, and you go, yeah, but what does he even do? And is that going to be used for the kingdom? You know, and I guess I would just encourage people to, to say that God gave, especially those of us that God has given resources to, financial resources, but not just financial, even the intellectual and the leadership abilities. You know, this is like the parable of the talents. If he gave you 10, you need to return at least 10. If he gave you five, you turn five. If he gives you one, you, go, you really shouldn't bury it. You should give back the one. So, you know, if it's a blue collar person, then maybe they don't have as many 
talents or they don't have as much quite as the same same leadership skills. But God clearly would benefit from having a bunch of people that are thinking about ministry in a more uh, macro way. Like, how are we going to change our world? And that is not likely to happen from people who grew up in a uh, 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 in a context in which they never saw leadership at all. The people that have the ability, the skills to do that are those who are building businesses, I think. And so I would just encourage many of your um, listeners not to undersell, undersell their own skill sets and their own capabilities and to leverage on uh, the skills that God has given them and to invest their finances and their intellect and their leadership in a way that pays real good. Well, I love that. Don't check your business brain at the door when you walk through the ministry door and uh, use all those gifts God gave you to uh, to further the kingdom. Well, David, uh, this has been a real joy. Thanks so much for being with us today. Great. Thanks very much, Jeff. Great. Really encouraging. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. Please, if you enjoyed it, share it with your friends, leave a review, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.